How many were with us on Friday night when we listened to the sounds of Good Friday? The sound of sorrow and of suffering, a good reminder before the table. And so I promised you there'd be one that would be amazing, and that is, isn't it? As the, t- the earth shook and the tomb, uh, the door of the tomb rolled away and Jesus came out in power. It's good to be with you this morning. It's been a great week. We celebrated together on Friday and again early this morning and in Sunday school after that. And now our time in the Word today will be in 1 Corinthians. Before we do that, I'd like to dismiss the little ones up through grade four. If you'd like your little ones in uh, age-graded service downstairs, you can have them dismissed at this time. Follow the teachers out. If you'd like to keep them with you, you're welcome to do that too. For the rest of you, while you are listening to the herd head out, turn in your copy of God's Word, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We are in a continuing study, God's plan for a healthy church, a study through the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians. If you're new with us, we welcome you. As we read God's word, we know it'll be a blessing for you wherever we pick up. That'll be a time where you'll be enriched. Resurrection Sunday and our continuing part in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection of motivation and obedience. It's a blessing to have been together during the week. Remembering the Lord's death on Friday, celebrating communion and refreshing our commitment to walk with the Lord, which is what communion is all about. Remember the high price Jesus paid to redeem us, and bearing the full wrath of God for the sin of the world in his body on the cross. He gave up his physical life on the cross and was laid in a tomb, a corpse. And on the third day, his body was raised to God, by God, to physical life. And these are well-documented facts and are part of Paul's main theme in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look there if you would. Paul begins the passage with their importance, actually. Look at verse 3, if you would. As is our habit, we're going to go verse by verse through the Word of God. We're in this passage today, and it just happens to coincide with this Resurrection Sunday, so we will look at it today. Verse 3 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received. There's a couple of things that we should take away from that statement. Paul did not originate the message he gave them. He simply passed on what he'd received. Paul is not giving us some views he's worked out for himself. He's passing on what had been told to him. And it's of primary importance because without this message, we don't have the fundamental essentials for salvation, for Christianity, or for the church. Paul says it is of primary importance that I pass them on to you. In other words, if you don't communicate the cross and the death and the resurrection of Christ when you're witnessing, you don't have the right message. Paul said this is of primary importance. And people can't be saved without believing that message. It's essential to the faith. And there are a number of other things that Paul addresses here in chapter 15 that are secured by these very important facts. But this is the starting place, and this is the standard. And so although we looked at this uh, a little while ago, I want you to look at it with me again. For I delivered to you as a first importance that which I also received. Look at the next part. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. There's our first stop. And a proper presentation of the gospel is going to point out some important distinctions. Number one, that Jesus' title of Christ, which means anointed one or Messiah, is his true identity. That's who he really is. Uh, Many were confused in the New Testament. Isn't this... The son of Joseph the carpenter, and aren't these his brothers and sisters who are around us? Where did he get such knowledge? How can he be this person that people portray him to be? But that's his true identity. That's also to say that all men are sinful, and that sin 
that sin that they have taken on and have demonstrated the sin principle in their life is required death. A proper presentation of the gospel is going to draw this distinction. If you're saying the same thing, if you're going to confess what the scriptures say, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. If you're going to say the same thing, that's what the word confess means, you're going to have to say that. That Jesus is title of Christ, which means anointed one, is his true identity, and that all men are sinful, and that sin required death. And then you're going to know that you are also worthy of death. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, is to say that his death was an atoning death. It's to acknowledge your dependence on Jesus' death as the satisfaction of your sentence to death. To be saved, you must say the same thing that the scriptures say. If you're saved, you'll say that he satisfied your sin debt. The cross is the starting point, see. A proper evaluation of every man's goodness. And then when we see Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, it's to say that this was no afterthought. Christ wasn't accidentally killed by men and kind of foiled God's plan for Christ coming and reigning. The saving death of Christ was foretold long before in the scriptures. Remember Acts 2.23? This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. This was precisely what God had planned all along. He predetermined it and foreknew it before the foundation of the world. It happened 2,000 years ago at the hands of sinful men. Now look at verse 4. And that he was buried. Proper presentation of the gospel will point out some important distinctions. Jesus had truly died. And again, as we indicated in verse 3, if you're saying the same thing about Jesus that the scriptures say, then you'll know that Jesus had to be put to death for your sins. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 tells us. And it appears that according to the scriptures is implied here. Certainly Isaiah 53 would confirm his physical death. He was with a rich man in his death, Isaiah 53 says. And that the burial of Jesus is a historical fact. That's another thing that's an important distinction to point out here. He was buried. Every gospel refers to his burial. And the burial is consistent with cultural precedent to take the dead bodies down from the cross and bury them prior to the nightfall and prior to the beginning of Sabbath. So the process was well known. Joseph of Arimathea assisted that uh, by Nicodemus, laid Jesus in a borrowed tomb, and everyone knew where it was. It wasn't a secret. And then this last wondrous part, verse 4. Look there if you would. And this is the part we celebrate today. And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And again, a proper presentation of the gospel is going to point out some important distinctions here as well. As you present these important facts by which people come to faith, it's to say that the empty tomb is a well-known fact. Since both the supporters and the opponents of Jesus asserted that Jesus was dead and thus buried and the tomb was empty, it was indeed empty. A correct presentation of the gospel is going to include that fact. Raised on the third day, a second important distinction would be that death couldn't hold Jesus. And remember, this is, this is a key element of belief from Romans 10.9. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It is key to salvation. And, and, there's no, and there is so much connected with the statement. His resurrection confirmed that he was sinless, born of a virgin by the Holy Spirit. Adam's sin had no hold on Jesus. Since he was truly dead, his resurrection was the reanimation of a corpse. He saw no decay, Scripture says, raised to glorious life, and by trusting in his resurrection, all who believe will escape sin's punishment and be raised to life. It is a key thing. And this is the thing that Paul really kind of focuses on, becomes the foundation of the rest of his teaching as he works through 1 Corinthians 15. Another distinction would be that Jesus was raised by the power of God. It says that he was raised on the third day. 
He was raised as a verb in the perfect passive indicative. Just as means that, that it's a view of the maximum possible emphasis of the permanent results of the event. So in other words, by the power of God, Jesus the Messiah was raised and placed in a permanent position of reality. He'll forever be the risen Lord. Isn't that glorious? He's forever going to be in that spot, see? We need to look at that very often, and we need to sing about that often, and we need to remember that and thank God for that often. This is not some passing thing that happened 2,000 years ago. He remains in that spot and forever will be raised to a glorious position of Lord over all by God Almighty. Hebrews 7.25 says that because of his death and his resurrection, Jesus is able to save, however, how long? Forever. Those who draw near to God through Christ, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Chapter 8, verse 1 says that after being raised, he has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. This is his permanent position as ruling Lord. His resurrection verified everything God said about him and everything he said about himself. And God has, as a result of raising Christ, given him a name that is above every name, and he's given him the right to judge, and it will always be that way. You'll never have to, beloved, you'll never have to deal with a different judge and a different set of rules. The one Christ has established and the word he has established is always the one that's going to be over us. And what a wonder that is. Uh, what a glorious thing that occurred in Jerusalem on that, uh, that first day of the week 2,000 years ago. Jesus was raised and permanently placed in the position of risen Lord and Savior. And then again, according to the scriptures, here at the end of this passage is to make the distinction again, this wasn't an afterthought. The resurrection of Christ was foretold long before Scripture. In the Scriptures, Isaiah 53 certainly speaks of his life after death. Psalm 16.10, written by David, as prophesying God's rising of Christ. Jesus himself used Jonah's time in the belly of the fish to indicate the foreshadowing of how long he would remain dead. He told his followers many times that his resurrection would be accomplished. The great saving act of God, through the death and burial and resurrection of Christ, was delivered to Paul and was of first importance delivered to the church in Corinth and is still being delivered to the church around the world. It is still making a difference and changing lives. And we have worked our way through chapter 15, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Paul has continued to emphasize the important impacts of the physical resurrection of Christ. So we've been able then to study the wonderful topic at length. It's particularly enriching, I think, uh, to have been able to spend the time we've been able to spend already dealing with this marvelous reality, particularly then as it, as it landed on a time leading up to and including the Resurrection Sunday. That hardly ever happens as you work verse by verse, and it's just marvelous that we could do this on this time period. Now, in light of the very well-established facts of Jesus' resurrection, Paul has made clear that there is an enormous impact on the hope of our faith based on his bodily resurrection. And so Paul, using irrefutable nature of Jesus' resurrection and giving it the importance it merits, addresses the idea circulating around Corinth, that there is no resurrection from the dead. And as you've read through 1 Corinthians 15, you realize that that's the error Paul's dealing with. As Paul, as we've labeled our study, uh, God desires a healthy church, God wants a healthy church, this is the error they had, that there is no resurrection from the dead. And so uh, Paul is using this irrefutable nature of Jesus. He showed that he had been seen by many people, over 500 at one time, and, and of course uh, to very unlikely witnesses of his resurrection. And then he goes on and just shows that this is the case. And the sum of it is this. If you just can't believe that people rise from the dead, so you don't believe Jesus was raised, how's that going to affect your life? So Paul establishes a resurrection, establishes it as a keystone for salvation. Then he just says, listen, if in the church you're saying there's, there's no resurrection from the dead, 
then that means Jesus isn't raised, and that's going to impact you. And then he goes in, and really the rest of 1 Corinthians 15 is the explanation of how that impacts you. And so we see the importance of the resurrection as it extends right through life and through the end of time. And that's what we've been doing. Now in verses 12 through 20, and of course if you've been with us, you've gone through this passage already. Verses 12 through 20, he says if the resurrection didn't take place, then the gospel's a sham, and it doesn't have any substance. And he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, doesn't have any meaning. So right off, the, right off the top, he says, as we get to uh, verse 12, he says, listen, if Jesus, if the resurrection didn't take place, then uh, your gospel that we teach, this important thing that we just got through teaching, has no substance. It doesn't have any meaning. And Paul says, if the resurrection didn't take place, then your faith is a sham, and it has no substance. So the gospel's a sham, your faith is a sham. And another thing you should know, Paul says, listen, if no one physically rises from the dead, then Jesus didn't rise. And if Jesus didn't rise, then we're a bunch of liars. So we're running around telling everybody Jesus rose, and he didn't. Further, if no one's raised, then Jesus wasn't raised. And if Jesus wasn't raised, then the object of your faith is without power, which means you remain inside the power of sin. In that case, Jesus' death has accomplished nothing. So here's the deal. Christ, dead without a resurrection, is a condemned, not a justified Jesus. So how could he justify anyone else? And that, that's how Paul builds his case as he works through 1 Corinthians 15. And by the way, Paul says, all those you know who died in Christ, they're all lost, so don't worry about them. I mean, they're gone, and there's nothing you can do about it. And if the dead are not raised, Paul says, and we've set our hope on the raising of Christ, we have wasted our lives trying to struggle against sin and seeking to please Christ, and, and all the Bible studies we've been to, and all the witnessing we're doing, and all the stuff we've been doing, Paul says, we are of most men to be pitied, because we've just wasted our life. If Christ isn't raised, then all this is a waste, and you've used up your life for nothing. Verse 20 says, look there if you would, it's not so. Christ did rise from the dead. And then in verses 20 through 28, Paul shows a very broad impact of the resurrection in really setting up and accomplishing the end of all things and the turning over the kingdom to the Father. And so those made righteous by believing will be justified and resurrected in eternal life. That's all based on the resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead as the first fruits we saw. And so that anyone who comes after who's believed, they'll be raised too, to eternal life. And we saw that those have, who have remained in their sin will be resurrected as well, to eternal death. All temporary authorities, all powers and dominions are all going to be rendered powerless. See? And all the enemies of God are going to be brought low and brought into subjection, and the kingdom will be turned over to God, all because of the resurrection. Paul says if you dismiss the resurrection, you lose all of that. Christ established, because of God's power to raise him, that he had the right to turn the world over back to God. He's going to bring everything to subjection, all power, authority, all dominion. Everyone who's raised themselves up as an enemy of God, all brought into subjection and turned over to, to the Lord because Christ was raised. So Paul gives the church the doctrine of the resurrection in verses 1 through 12 and the application of the doctrine and the motivation to embrace it in verses 12 through 20. And then again, in verses 20 through 28, he gives the doctrine of the, the resurrection, and then, again, the application of the doctrine, beginning in verses 29 and following, and that's where we're going to be today. And he carries with it some really great incentives and some great motivations. And just like in verse 12, yeah, if we remove the bodily resurrection, see, we lose those incentives and we lose those motivations. So look with me in your copy of God's Word. Look at verse 29, if you would. And we're going to read right through the end of this section, verse 34. Read there together with me. And this is where we picked up last time. Verse 29, Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead, if the dead are not raised at all? Why then are they baptized for them? Verse 30, Why are we also in danger every hour? 
Verse 31, I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Verse 32, if from human motives I fought with wild beasts in Ephesus, what does it profit me if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Verse 34, become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Let's pause right there. Now, all of that based on the truth of the resurrection, because as we saw last time, it's unlikely that people are going to give their life to something they don't really have any hope in. In fact, First Corinthians, or, or Philippians chapter 1, verse 20 through 24, is a really great illustration of this, as the Bible explains the Bible. Verse 20 says this, according, Paul says this, according to my earnest expectation and hope. Now, those are important phrases, okay? According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by my life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, we just read that section from verse 29 through 34 that talked about motivations to live a holy life, motivations to follow people who follow Christ, you know, motivations to, um, uh, to, to walk with people who walk with the Lord, all that, all that stuff, see? And so, you know, witnessing and all the danger of witnessing and all the motivation to do that. Now, here's Paul, and he says in 1 Corinthians 1.20, it's my earnest expectation and my hope. I'm not going to be put to shame in anything, but in all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body. He's very motivated to do that, okay? Sold out. Seems very uh, a long departure from where the church is now, right? For I'm crucified with Christ, and therefore now I no longer live, but Jesus Christ now lives in me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How far is that away from modern Christianity? I'm crucified with Christ, and I no longer live? They obviously knew something that we don't know, or they've embraced something significant that we've forgotten to embrace. And I would present to you that Paul's point here is that they have remembered the resurrection of Christ. Everything is based on it. So when Paul says this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, how is it to die is gain for Paul? How can that be true? Because to die is lost for almost everybody else we know, right? It's the thing we avoid most. It's the thing we desire to avoid most and put off the longest. See? But Paul said, hey, to die is gain for me. Paul sacrifices his body and his health and eventually his life to the ministry of Christ because he fully expects to what? To see Christ and be rewarded by him. And why does he expect that? Because the tomb was empty and Christ rose and he has victory over death. And, and all who believe in Christ rising from the dead also have life. And Paul has no doubt that to die would immediately be gain. See? It's a great incentive, isn't it? The resurrection is huge incentive. He knew someday he'd be in heaven and see the fruit of his labor. And he did it with absolute faith that he would see Christ. There's not even a question of doubt in Paul's mind. He knew that he, would do, that, that he would see the people he loved, the people he'd won to Christ in this life, later in eternity. And here's why he did what he did. Because Christ was raised, and so he would be raised. See? And that gave Paul a lot of freedom, didn't it? To respond in obedience, and that's a lot of motivation and a lot of incentive. And it releases us from the bonds of this is all there is, see? And that's, I would present to you, that's Paul's point here in this section from 29 to 34. And Paul's saying here, you know, there's strong motivation to respond in obedience to Jesus' commands. Because people aren't going to present their bodies to Christ as a living sacrifice, and they aren't going to come to Christ, and they aren't going to serve Christ, and they aren't going to live a holy life, just to kind of sum this up, if we don't have a resurrection. And so again, we see Paul's approach in this chapter 
is to appeal to Jesus' authority over, over eternal life as his authority over the first and second resurrection, see? And so he, and so he clearly explained it and it is such a sure hope for the future that he was completely committed to living his life that way, see? And here's how Paul presents it to them in 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus has no authority over those things, then in effect, that's removed some major incentives out of the Christian living, and it's removed the motivation to respond in obedience, see? If there's no authority over it because he didn't rise, then all that stuff is taken away, see? The motivation to commit yourself, the motivation to be, to be uh, given over to the ministry, the motivation to sacrifice yourself daily, see? And so if there are really no consequences, see, if there's no resurrection, then there's no consequences because Jesus isn't going to be the ruler, is he? And he isn't going to be the judge. So if there's no consequences and there won't be any reward for, for you because you're not going to rise and there's never going to be any punishment and no one's holding them, anybody accountable, what makes you think people are going to bother with Christianity, see? And that's the whole point. Paul says, listen, if in the church you say, hey, dead men don't rise. Paul says that if dead men don't rise, Christ doesn't rise. That has a whole bunch of impact on you as it relate, relates to how you're going to live your life. Not only is it going to wrap up everything and be the end of all things, not only does it make sure we're secure uh, from our sin, that Christ has dealt with it, but it's going, to, it's going to impact what you do on a daily basis, see? And so that's Paul's point, and that's where he's headed. But on the other hand, see, if there is a resurrection, and we will face Christ, and there will be a judgment seat of Christ because he rose, and if there will be a day of reunion in heaven, and if there will be a time when we dwell in the, with the Lord Jesus and the saints in the ages forever, if there, that time is set, and if there are those things in eternity for which we can hope and in which we can believe, see, then there's motivation to live for Christ in this life. See, that's Paul's point. It's not just belief on nothing, see, it's belief on a firm understanding that Christ rose and because he rose, will rise, and everything he said is true, and so we're going to live that way, see. It's like I told you at the end of Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You know, they're standing up in the sky after Jesus goes up. And the angels come back and say, why are you standing there staring in the sky? This Jesus who left is going to come back the same way. And by the way, he's going to be checking on what he told you to do. There's, there's a reunion someday, and he's going to find out how well you did the Great Commission. Okay? And how, long, how, how you took your life and gave it away for that very purpose. Now look at verse 29. Paul says this. Because you kind of have the groundwork here. Look at verse 29. Paul says, otherwise... What will those do who are baptized for the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Why then are they baptized for them? Now, last week I gave you a whole bunch of background to this verse. It's a very difficult verse. It's one of the ones that pops up in Q&A quite often. People are like, well, what does that mean? And I gave that to you, so if you missed that, you can check online and get all that background, and you can get that. We'll go through that today, okay? But what you likely have here is this, in general. You have people coming to faith in the Corinthian church, and they desire to be baptized and give an outward testimony of their commitment to Jesus, and they're doing this, mark this, because they were first exposed to believers who are now with Christ that led such godly lives and had such excellent testimonies that they wanted to follow in their footprints. That's likely the understanding. And I gave you a bunch of background on why that's probably the case. Okay, so there's a motivation principle, number one, that we can kind of see here. Okay, here's the thing. Here's the question Paul's asking in this statement. Why would anyone follow another's example into Christianity if the dead aren't rise, or are raised? And so the point Paul was making is this that their practice of being baptized on behalf of a deceased member makes no sense where the resurrection of the dead is doubted, as it was by some within the Corinthian church. See? If Jesus really isn't the first fruits, and so you can't come back because he's still in the grave, and so you won't rise either, 
and your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins, what's the point of following a hopeless, powerless Savior? You'd just be wasting your time. See? Now look at verse 30. Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, verse 31, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Verse 32, if from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what did it profit me? In other words, if it's only for this life and only because somebody decided they were going to throw me in the ring there with, with uh, a wild beast, it was only for this, then what did it profit me? Why am I in danger every hour, Paul says? What's the point of that? I affirm, brethren, he says, by boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus, I die daily. And we read some of those background passages that had to do with Paul and all the time. The things he recounted for the church of things he's been through, see. And this is directly related to witness. Okay, the witness that you have as a believer. It's, it's directly related to the work of the ministry. Uh, carrying out of the Great Commission. And although we might not see this on a daily basis, if you go to Syria or you go to Iraq or Iran or someplace like that, South Sudan, and you're a witness, you're going to see this right away. Okay, you're going to die daily and maybe die the first day. So here's the deal. Paul's point here is this. Why would anyone want to take on the danger of witnessing if there isn't any resurrection? That's the point. There's no point in continuing in this process because if death is the end of everything, you're going to likely live a lot longer if you just avoid Christianity altogether. And just don't mention Jesus' name and you'll live a lot longer, see? If Jesus didn't rise, there isn't any good news anyway. So the gospel's powerless. If he didn't conquer death, and he didn't conquer sin, and he didn't conquer hell, then there is no faith, and there's no deliverance. And so why would anyone be motivated to take on the danger of witnessing if there's no resurrection? See, you'd live a lot longer if you didn't do it. And what would be the point of following Christ if the grave is the end? See, there's no point. No one's placing their hope on an unresurrected Savior who said he was going to rise and then didn't. And what would be the point of witnessing and being persecuted and thrown into the ring with wild animals, as Paul said, and using up your health and your life and all your resources to witness that a Savior rose when he didn't rise? Not only do you have a powerless faith, but you can be called out as a liar. And that was Paul's point just a few verses ago. If you say God raised Jesus when he didn't really raise him, no one's placing their life in danger for that, see? So there's great motivation in the resurrection. So if you deny the resurrection, you take away the motivation to witness you take away the motivation to follow after faithful people who came before you and say, wow, you know, he's the reason why or she's the reason why I followed Christ. And I gave you some examples perhaps from the first century that people would have, would have thought about in their mind about maybe some lady that they might have known, uh, Lydia perhaps, who was sick, very sick, but committed, knew she was going to rise and was a great witness to those who were around her. When she died, they came to faith later and they said, you know, she knew she was going to rise. She wasn't overly concerned about her health in this life because Christ was going to give her a resurrection. And so I'm going to follow in her footsteps, and I'm getting baptized on her behalf. I'm, I mean, it's because of her I'm getting baptized. And so that's the idea, see. But what would be the point? Now look at verses 32 through 34, if you would. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Verse 34, become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning, and for some have no knowledge of God, I speak this to your shame. Now, as we kind of capture those verses, that obviously concerns the pattern of your life. So first, we, we've talked about being saved and following in the, in the footsteps of godly people. Second, we talked about the witness that you would have, a great commission given to you to carry out, but why would you do any of that? 
if it's just a lie anyway and Jesus is still in the grave. So it takes away the motivation to live a certain way. Now, this has to do with the pattern of your life. And the idea there really is this. If the dead are not raised, really implied from verse 13, okay, because that's how he starts the whole section, then Jesus isn't raised. So how else would that apply? What motivation, what incentive would it remove? That's Paul's point, okay? Here's the incentive it removes. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. In other words, here's the motivation principle number three. Why get all concerned about saying no and all of that, okay? Why would anyone want to live a holy life if the dead aren't raised? That's the point, see? I mean, just live out the beer commercial, right? I mean, what would be the point of a holy life? Just live out the beer commercial. Just grab all the gusto you can, right? I mean, just, just live out the, the car commercials. Uh, just live out the J.P. Morgan commercials, right? Uh, get all you can, can all you get, and sit on the can. Or, or you know, um, retire as, get as much as you can, retire as early as you can, do as little as you can for as long as you can. Why not just live that way? Because it takes away the motivation for holy living. If Christ isn't raised then there isn't any reward and there isn't a future life that you're laying up treasure in and you're not going to go up there and find that what you did here and the sacrifices you made, the Lord glorifies and puts you in such a way that you can honor him forever for the sacrifices you made here, see? But it takes all of that away. And so Paul just says, hey, if the dead are raised, let's just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. I mean, if there isn't a resurrection, if there isn't accountability, if there isn't any judgment, see, if there isn't... Uh, anything that is waiting later to call you into account, then just go for it. And it's a direct quote, see, from Isaiah 22. And we know that's exactly what they're talking about because Isaiah 22 is the Lord's going to bring Judah into account by using Babylon to judge her. So it's coming up to the time of Jerusalem's fall in 586. And so verse 12 says this, Therefore, in that day, the Lord God of hosts called you to weeping and to wailing and to shaving the head and to wearing sackcloth. So they've been living however they wanted, as if there was no accountability, doing what they wanted to do and not following the Lord's law, which brought them into judgment to begin with. And the Lord sent the prophets and said, hey, there needs to be some repentance going on here. You need to turn from what you're doing. There's a future accountability. And so the Lord says, listen, I've called you to weeping and to wailing and shaving the head and wearing sackcloth. Instead, verse 13... There's gaiety and gladness and killing of cattle and slaughtering of sheep and eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That's it, right? There's no accountability. I'm not going to worry about it. And that's exactly what Israel did. They just lived however they wanted to live. And that's precisely what Paul's saying. When you forget about eternity, you can just live out the beer commercial. Someone should have remembered, though, that God loved them and that in his holiness he wouldn't let them continue in disobedience to him and it was the same in Corinth, and it's the same now. And they forgot about eternity and the long tomorrow. And if you take away the resurrection, you're certainly not going to go out and give your life away in a sacrifice every hour of every day for a cause that isn't going to come to pass anyway. See? Because the resurrection guarantees that what you live for is secure. The resurrection guarantees that your sacrifice isn't forgotten. The resurrection guarantees that what you set aside to serve Christ with, he understands. And replaces and rewards. See, That's the whole point. So it has to do with how you live and the motivation to live in that certain way. Following after the other godly people and placing your life on the line to witness. And then what's the point of holy living if there's no resurrection? See, You know, Hebrews 13, 12 is a good example of that. The writer says, Therefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood suffered outside the gate. So it makes a general reference to uh, the crucifixion and what happened there. And then verse 13 
he makes the application. He says, so let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Mark this, for here we do not have a lasting city, but we're seeking the city which is to come. What's the motivation to go outside the gate and bear his reproach? That there's a city to come. The lasting city isn't here, see? But there isn't any point of bearing his reproach if there isn't any city to come. And there isn't any city to come if Christ isn't raised, see? And that's Paul's point. If the dead aren't raised, and then he goes through these three things that have to do with the Christian life now. That's really the idea Jesus expressed in Luke 12, 16. Telling him a parable, which is a, uh, an earthly example of a heavenly principle. So he says this, he told them, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have many good goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, mark it, what's it say? Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own all that you prepared? Everything you wrapped your life in, everything you measured your success by, see, it's all gone. And the reality, which is always the reality, beloved, it's only a realizing of the reality, perhaps, when you get to eternity, but it's always the reality. It's the reality for everyone who's ever lived. The reality of eternity has come. To the rich man, he said, tomorrow, your reality of eternity has come. But if there isn't a resurrection, then the rich man had a good business plan, and Jesus wouldn't have ever used it, right? I mean, what would be the problem with this plan? If there isn't a resurrection, and this is it, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. But this was used to give an example of what not to do, see? Not to live your whole life for yourself, all wrapped up in what you can do and what you can do later, and summing up your life by how high you've climbed up the ladder, there's a long tomorrow, and it's going to come. And it's going to start by a beam of seat judgment. There's accountability, and there's a great resurrection that's going to occur. The resurrection to life, for those who believe, and the resurrection to eternal death, for those who don't, and those who haven't. But if there's no resurrection, that's a great business plan. Paul goes on to say, look at verse 33, your copy of God's Word, 1 Corinthians 15, 33. So, we won't want to say, let us eat and drink, and tomorrow we'll die if there's, a, if there's a resurrection. But we will if there isn't. Then he says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And this is how to do, what you, how, has to do with how you choose your friends. And that we're deceived is present passive imperative. In other words, the people you hang out with will lead you astray, see? Don't, don't be deceived. Don't kid yourself, Okay. If, if the people you're associating with are just living for today and they have no fear of judgment or an accounting, people who live with no resurrection hope, they're going to influence you. So he goes, listen, be wise about this. Don't be deceived. So you're hanging out with people who don't believe in a resurrection and no long tomorrow and they don't believe there's ever going to be an accounting. That's going to, that's going to impact you too. And that company is that word homilia. It's where we get our word homily. So it really seems the best way to understand this is what's being said, okay? So don't be deceived. Bad words 
from that bad company. So words that reinforce that there's no resurrection. See, it's where we get our, that's where we get our word for, for teaching. It's to say what's being said to you is going to corrupt you, uh, that this person you're spending your time with will say. And morals is the noun ethos, which has to do with habits or guidelines that we live our life by. So the idea then is Paul is saying, keeping away from the wrong kind of company, that of people who deny the resurrection, uh, is, if you keep company with them, they're going to corrupt those patterns and turn people away from the truth. So keep that in mind, Paul says. Listen, as you're living your life and as, you, as the pattern of your life, make sure that you understand it's not eat, drink, and tomorrow will die. It only is if there's no resurrection. Uh, remember, if you're hanging out with people that don't live like there's a resurrection, you're going to become like them. And then he says in verse 34, he says this, become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. So he just comes right down to it. And here Paul just gets to it and he says, if there's no accounting in the future, then you can just live like there's no moral absolutes. And that's exactly what they were doing, see. You know, don't worry about the life of, of following Christ. No one's going to take up their cross and follow Jesus with all the challenges and all the dangers and the investment of life and losing your life to find it. It's, it's all absolutely useless if there's no eternal life, right? Come back to your senses, Paul says. That's the free translation. The verb originally meant become sober after drunkenness. That's what he's saying, okay? And Paul says there is some long tomorrow, and Christ has been raised, and he will forever hold the position of reigning king. And he's going to bring all power, and he's going to bring all dominion, and all authority, nothing. He's going to bring the enemies of God into subjection, and he's going to turn the kingdom over to God. But you tell a guy there's no resurrection, there's no life after death, Watch the way he lives. And you can think of people that way, right, who are that, living that way right now, can't you? Probably some people in your own family. I have them. They don't believe there's any resurrection. There's no accounting. There's no long tomorrow. I'm going to live however I want. This is it. That's the philosophy of their life. And that's the very problem we have today, even in some of our churches. We are kind of nebulous on the actual physical resurrection of Christ. So Paul says, think righteously as you should. That's really the literal meaning there. Become sober-minded as you should. And it's in the imperative. What's that mean? This is a command from Paul. It's not a suggestion. Hey, maybe if you think about it, maybe you can conform your life. It works for you. And the imperative just means this is what you do, should do. And it sums up everything they should know. Think righteously as you should. Think righteously about how to live and how to follow the examples of those who've gone before and how you should be witnessing Think righteously as you should. Become sober-minded. Stop sinning. So he says, you know, looking at the resurrection, confidence in that resurrection will draw your heart to holiness. Don't forget, like we see in Hebrews, see, Hebrews 12, 28, he says this, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom in which, which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. See, the idea there is you're going to receive a kingdom that isn't going to be shaken. If you're a believer, you understand the resurrection guarantees that's going to occur. Unless you show gratitude and offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. That doesn't mean eat and drink for tomorrow you die, okay? It doesn't mean just kind of throwing the whole thing out because there's no sense following godly people anyway because there's no point in it and we're going to not witness because we'll live a lot longer if we don't. It doesn't matter. Become sober-minded, he says, and stop sinning. And beloved, that's really just a reminder that correctly, and this is how we started our series in this section of 1 Corinthians 15. You know, what does the Bible say? What does it mean by what it says? And how does that apply to me? That should make its way into your daily reading, okay? There's reasons why Paul is teaching on the resurrection, and he goes over it and over it, continually making illustrations of why it's so important. It is 
the base, the foundation of the gospel presentation. Without presenting, Christ died for our sins according to the scripture and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. People can't be saved. And the resurrection is the key. And he goes all the way through and says, listen, if you deny that, you take away all of these other things. And it changes the way you're going to live. And no one's following something that isn't true. Okay? And so as we get to this section, it's just a reminder. Think righteously as you should. Be sober-minded as you ought. Stop saying, listen, there's an application to the teaching of the resurrection. Not just as the foundation for salvation, but as all of life. It impacts all of life. Correctly understanding what the Bible says leads to that application of how should I live. And Paul just spells it out here for them. Good doctrine leads to good conduct. And unsound doctrine leads to bad conduct and sinful behavior. There's a kingdom coming because Christ was raised. And Paul says the resurrection should be impacting how you're spending your time here. And if you deny the truth of the resurrection, you've removed an incentive to good living, see? Because what happened in Corinth is the same thing that happens now if we lose sight of the resurrection. Paul says this, catch it, for some have no knowledge, for some have no knowledge of God, I speak this to your shame. In fact, Paul says, I'm ashamed that I have to remind you of this because you should have known. Paul was with the Corinthian church how long? 18 months as their pastor. Do you think he covered this with them? Of course he did. I'm ashamed, Paul says, that I have to remind you of this because you should have known. There are people around you who are agnosia. That's the word they use, and that's where we get our word agnostic. They don't know. They're ignorant of God because they don't have the true knowledge of God. The God who raised Christ as the first fruits of eternal resurrection. And the resurrection has tremendous implications. See, if Jesus rises from the dead and if he's alive, we shall live also. And then there's an incentive for people to be saved because there's either hell or hope after death. There's either judgment or there's joy. There's either the second resurrection or there's a reunion, see. That's incentive to follow in the footsteps of those who are now part of that great crowd of witnesses, see. And someday you'll be there with an unnumbered and mostly unsung millions around the throne where you, all of you, have given up and everything that you've done as a sacrifice, is remembered and rewarded. See? And that's incentive. And that's important. Paul says, if you're denying the resurrection, you're missing an important key element in your witness and how you act in front of people. And Paul says, you know, I speak this to your shame. Some have no knowledge of God. Why? Because you live as if there's no tomorrow. If nobody rises. What's the point? But there's an incentive to witness and give your life away and give it up because someday you know you'll be rewarded for that sacrifice and the hardship and the persecution, see? And that's incentive to live a holy life. Because morality and saying no to the flesh will be honored and rewarded. So keep your eyes on the power of the gospel and the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And don't despair like Isaiah did. Remember, I've said I've toiled in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely justice due to me is with the Lord and my reward with my God. I'm not really sure why I'm doing what I'm doing. Don't be like that. You're sure you know what you're doing because Christ has done what he's done. And then he said, hey, just follow me. Just take up your cross and follow me. I remember what you're doing. I remember what you give up. I remember the sacrifice. Do what I did and follow in my footsteps. And be very secure, giving your life away and what you have away, and your resources and your time and your health and whatever it takes, see, for the gospel. 
And the Lord knows, Matthew 6, that you need to make a living and provide for the needs of your family. The Lord knows all that, but he says at the end, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. See, the Lord knows you need the stuff you need. But here's the thing. He's waiting for you to commit yourself in such a way that you, you live like the resurrection is true. And like you're going to see Jesus because you will. See, 2 Timothy 4, 7. Don't you want to say this? See, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Listen, beloved, do you think he fought the good fight, finished the course, and kept the faith just because? Just because? No. He was committed to the fact that in the future, there was laid up for him a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but all who've loved his appearing. How do you love his appearing? You long for it. You live in that light of his appearing. You know that it's coming. Your decisions you make in your life and decisions you make for your future and for your retirement and for your spouse and for whatever, for your kids, is lived in light of the fact that Christ rose and is forever, eternally resurrected Messiah. And someday call all into account and someday come and give the rewards that are due. And you live in that light and you follow him and you witness and you walk in holiness. The three things Paul just got through talking about. Here's the thing. If you're living for yourself, are you loving his appearing? Because if you're living for yourself and he appears, which he will, that's not going to be fun. And there's whole passages in, in the Old Testament, precisely what uh, the Jews said. Oh, the day of the Lord, oh, the day of the Lord. And what did the prophets say? That's not going to be a fun day for you. And didn't Jesus actually say that to his disciples? Listen, who's the wise servant? Is it the one that kind of kicks around and doesn't take care of, 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 the, of the other people around him and just does what he wants? What happens when the master shows up? That's not a good thing. Who's the white servant who's doing what he's supposed to do when the master appears? Live like it's the case, see? Paul lived that way. In the future, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. For those who love his appearing, everyone receives that. How do you love his appearing? You long for it, you live for it, you follow him, you witness, you walk in holiness. You live because in such a way that you know you'll stand before the master because you will. See, This very Christ who was raised up out of your sight will return exactly the same way that you saw him go. James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, if I, I took a survey, how many people love God, lots of hands would go up. But did you know it's, it's not just ambiguous? 1 John 5, 3, this is the love of God. What is it? That we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Get it? Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he's been reproved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And how do we show that we love him? We obey his commands. His commands are not burdensome. That becomes the witnessing factor that we truly do love the Lord, see? We've been so used to this, this uh, you know, great-grandpa in heaven that just is happy about everything we do. And there is a graciousness to the Lord and a compassion and a kindness and a long-suffering and a righteousness and a goodness that are all part of his character. But truth is the belt he girds it all up with. And he's, all the things that he said about um, what will happen in the future will come to pass. How do we show the Lord we love him? We keep his commands. And then this one, beloved, Revelation twenty two twelve. 
at the end of all of that that he told John and shown all that was going to occur, he comes back to the present with John about living in such a way. And Revelation is the only book that says, but he who hears, he who sees and hears and does the words written in this book. He comes back and he says, behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter to the gates of the city. Amen? All because of the resurrection. Behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me. How sure is that day, beloved? As sure as anything you know in your life. Let's live that way, okay? The resurrection isn't just something we're just celebrating on this certain day of the year because we're Christians and we think it's great. It is the key to everything we do and the way we live our life. It, it was the foundation and the doorway through which we came to faith. It becomes really the motivating factor because of all that Jesus is now because of his resurrection to how we live. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, thank you for this Resurrection Sunday. More than just today, we, we celebrate as, as believers Christ's resurrection as the cornerstone of all we believe. Father, death has been brought into subjection and will one day be swallowed up in victory. And we are so grateful for that. Help us in what we know about the past and what we know about the future to be incorporated in the now, Father. What we know about what happened on the cross, what we know about what happened in the tomb, and on that third day that Christ, you raised Christ in power. Help us to know what we know about that. And what we just read just not too long ago out of 1 Corinthians about what will happen in the future, that Jesus will come, his parousia, he will come and he will put all dominion, power, and authority into subjection. He'll bring all the enemies of God into subjection and turn the whole kingdom over to you. Help what we know about the past and what we know about the future to be incorporated in how we live right now. Help us to live mindful of all those who've gone before and, and are around your throne now. That great crowd of witnesses, the ones that we think about sometimes as we think about how we live. Help us to live as those who must give an account, because we will, about everything we said and everything we did. And we're in no danger of hell and no danger of being cast away, but certainly we'll come before your judgment seat and you will look at what we've built on this foundation of Christ. And some will be wood, hay, and stubble, and some will be gold, silver, and costly stone. And you will get rid of all the stuff uh, that is wood, hay, and stubble. Help us to live that way. Help us to live like we have that tomorrow's appointment with you. Help us to live as those who can stand before your face. That's what we really want. Unashamed, like Paul said, and boldly say by the power of the Spirit of God, I endeavored to live to honor you, my King. I endeavored to live that way because I knew you rose, and that resurrection changed everything. Thank you for the fellowship we had today, Father. Thank you for the time on Friday, for early this morning, for breakfast. We're so grateful for that. We're so grateful for uh, the wonder that is this walk we have with you this security that we have, that you can save us forever, that you give us your Holy Spirit to live in such a way. Lord, I pray that you'll help us divide away the hidden sins and the, and the justifications for living like we want. And Lord, instead help us to embrace uh, what you have done, boldly saying, this is your life bought with a price. Let me glorify you with my body, which is Christ's. 
And we pray all this really together in wholehearted devotion, but by your Holy Spirit, uh, apart from your Holy Spirit, we're not going to do it. So Lord, that we give you full reign to do these things and help us to live in this way. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said.